uh, source for a lot of the gas companies, uh, which once it's taken out of the ground, it's purified and liquefied. But it's it's coming out very pure. But everybody's trying to make beverage grade, and beverage grade is what would serve the cannabis industry as well. By the way, because they there are various grades sold and. You might say, but in the end, it's virtually all sold, sold at beverage grade or maybe a few, a few industrial locations or some, uh, say, hospital grade. And that's another story. Hey, guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. And we're live. Hey, Sam. Hi. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me this morning. Um, And thank you, everybody else who's listening right now. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, I would love, let us know where you're you're coming in from, um, who you are. We'd love to chat with you. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation because it's, Sam is not from the hemp industry. He's not trading or working necessarily in the industry, but it's been interesting as we've had conversation to see the connection to where hemp could be a value add or where byproducts of processing industrial hemp can be used in what Sam is doing. And so I'm really curious. And it's been interesting because the conversation around hemp, like I just mentioned to Sam, has been so focused on um, you know, carbon sequestration and reducing the carbon footprint and reducing emissions. And Sam is actually in the industry that is buying and selling or trading CO2 and um, carbon dioxide. And so it's fascinating to me how byproducts of processing industrial hemp could potentially be carbon dioxide and then where that could be actually traded or reused. And so we talked about this circular economy or sustainability and yeah, so I'm kind of interested and, and excited about this chat. But first, I'm really interested, um, before we get started, let me back up a little bit. Sam, you want to tell everybody real quick who you are and what you do and what is your background and um, how you got to where we are? Okay. My name is Sam Rushing, and uh, my company is Advanced Cryogenics, LTD. I'm a CO2 consultant. I work all over the world, and I uh, most of my work is in North America, but I've work worked in many countries throughout the world uh, as a consultant. And, and toward that end, my work involves uh, evaluating CO2 sources, developing new CO2 sources, uh, CO2 production plants. And production plants essentially is purification of a raw stream that's coming off of a, of a process, chemical process. Uh, and also my other work is involved in applications for CO2, such as we talk about supercritical extraction and greenhouse uh, enhancement, things like that. Uh, plus, a, you know, a lot of it in the food and beverage industry, as well as industrial applications for CO2. And of course, what's happened over the last few years, and even more so in the last year or two, has been a drive toward limiting CO2 that's being vented to the atmosphere recovering it and using it in a process and hopefully trapping it in a process. And so we're trying to reduce, we're not 
add to at least the CO2 content in the atmosphere. It's over 400 parts per million right now. But anyway, further on my background, I'm a chemist by background, and I, prior to uh, running my business, Advanced Cryogenics, I worked for a company called uh, Amerigas CO2 Division. The Amerigas organization was owned by a utility in Pennsylvania. They sold out pieces of it to whomever. And when the company sold out, I formed my company. Uh, in the merchant company, the Amerigas organization, I had held many jobs, uh, applications engineer, all kinds of things like that. Uh, so, you know, I feel I'm very well-rounded as a consultant. Uh, I provide virtually all types of services relating to the commodity and uh, expert witness work and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, Mandy, that's kind of the short of it right there. Okay, so can you real quick, I want to hear about some of the projects you've worked, worked on. What have been some of the most interesting types of products, or I mean, not products, projects? Well, I, I think, you know, the food and beverage industry, the beverage industry is, is yeah. always been there to some degree. Uh, see, let me just tell you about the breakdown with respect to CO2 utilization in this country. Yeah. About 70% of all CO2, they call it merchant CO2. We're not talking about stuff that goes to oil fields and, and across the fence for chemical manufacturing. But the so-called merchant trade, 70% uh, is food and beverage, of which about 70% of that would be food. And that kind of food uh, application would be fast freezing using CO2 as a refrigerant for cryogenic freezing. Uh, it's used for uh, atmospheric uh, replacement, like to replace atmospheres in a, in a uh, say, a meat product or a food product so bacteria will not grow, that kind of thing. It's used for production of dry ice and CO2 snow for shipment of products. And of course, during the pandemic, there was a whole thing about Pfizer. Their medication had to be, you know, Mm -hmm. very low temperature the only agent of portable agent would have been dry ice for that for that kind of thing now a lot of them have installed super cold refrigeration uh, since then but anyway it's a uh, that's a food industry beverage industry you know has always been there for for carbonated beverages it, it picked up more so with uh, carbonated uh, water and and now the so-called craft beverages Everybody, you know, is is has an alcohol-based uh, drink now. Just about everybody, even the tea manufacturers. So that's that's a change. And then, with respect to industrial uses, uh, one popular thing for sequestration is putting CO two in concrete, and that en enhances the strength of the concrete, uh, calcium carbonate content. Uh, it's also sequesters it indefinitely. So, but then that's a that's a finite amount of CO2 that could go out there for right? sequestration. Uh, a lot of companies are looking at sequestering it in, uh, down hole into sandstone into uh, permeable structures in the uh, underground. Uh, and then on a, on a larger scale, CO2 is recovered generally not from these chemical plants, but it's from uh, large natural sources that are natural wells that contain CO2. And that goes for enhanced oil recovery, which can be very large in, in, in uh, size or 
in some cases, uh, you know, the energy sector. Uh, there's one project in, in uh, called Dakota, Dakota Gasification. It's in North Dakota that I think they haul or transport about 10,000 tons per day. That's a lot of CO2 via pipeline to the Saskatchewan oil fields for enhancing the recovery of oil, uh, which may, essentially it's a solvent. Okay, in that in that application, it's also a solvent uh, for uh, supercritical extraction of CBD, which I'll talk about later. Uh, but anyway, uh, going back to what we talk about the the sector with respect to where it comes from, it's a byproduct virtually for the with the exception of the natural wells. Now, the natural wells probably hold as much as twenty percent of the CO two supply within the the, uh, say the uh, supply chain within the merchant network, uh, that's significant. Uh, 45% of all CO2 that's sold to the merchant industry would be recovered from fermentation or otherwise called ethanol in most cases. And of course the fuel grade ethanol is sold to the gasoline industry as an additive. Everything we put in our gas tanks contains ethanol. In the Midwest, uh, there's a big push to increase that use of percentage in, of gasoline blended to 15%. Most places it's five to 10% right now. But in the, in the end, it's ethanol is critically important to the CO2 industry as a supply source. And then then you have the anhydrous ammonia production, the, the ammonia that's used in, in farming as a fertilizer, that's about 20% to byproduct off that. Uh, the natural wells I spoke of earlier, these are wells uh, that contain high purity CO2. Uh, there's a huge dome uh, around Jackson, Mississippi that is a big supply uh, source for a lot of the gas companies, uh, which once it's taken out of the ground, it's purified and liquefied. But it's it's coming out very pure, but everybody's trying to make beverage grade. And beverage grade is what would serve the cannabis industry as well by the way, because they, they're various grades sold and you might say, but in the end, it's virtually all sold, sold at beverage grade or maybe a few, in, few industrial locations or some uh, say hospital grade. And that's another story altogether. That's less than 5% of the market. Now, uh, in addition to 20% coming from uh, ammonia and 20% natural sources, uh, reformer sources, which are uh, essentially making, producing hydrogen and refineries, is represent about 10% of the source type for the merchant trade as well. And then there's a remaining 5% that would be a whole bunch of stuff like re fluid gas recovery and ethylene oxide and other chemicals like titanium dioxide and you know syngas and stuff like that. So. And the industry is striving to come up with new clean source types. Uh, biogas, of course, is a hot issue today, making natural gas or RNG, uh, renewable natural gas off biogas. The beverage industry is not accepting biogas because it contains what they call waste, and it can be absolute waste, like fecal matter. We're not happy with any of that, you know, but that's, that's reality. Uh, that stuff would be... In the end, a lot of it is coming from industrial uh, municipal wastewater plants. And then there are some farming uh, 
uh, operations that have biogas uh, using just food uh, waste product like orange peels or whatever it might be or vegetables uh, and and nobody is really recovering co2 from that sector yet for the merchant trade because it, it has a label of waste attached to it and a beverage outfit so just saying no waste period in a feedstock uh, so uh, and other source types would be things like you know i, I worked on a project up in British Columbia that was to make renewable natural gas from waste wood, waste wood being the forestry uh, scraps when they take down trees and things like that, or other wood waste, which waste in that respect just, just talks about wood scraps essentially. Uh, and using that for making renewable natural gas, which is wonderful, that's a nice green feedstock. And then you have a CO2 byproduct from that particular process, and that would be extremely green. So that's, that's one new thing that has been discussed. Another one would be fuel cells making electricity uh, with, uh, from fuel cells and then CO2 byproduct off a given process. And once again, that's extremely clean. Uh, you're not burning anything, you're not burning hydrocarbons, you're not you know, producing oil or anything like that in order to make CO2. So in that respect, it's, you know, extremely clean source type. Uh, Mandy, what's the next uh, thought? Okay, well, I've got a question. When we were talking about the, the different types of use, right? We talked about all the different verticals. What about the differences on international, um, you know, trade and use of Well, yeah, saying that developed countries like the States here or say Western Europe, for example, or, or Japan or Australia, places like that, they have basically the same uh, percentage of CO2 going for food and beverage as we have here, uh, which beverages are starting to grow a little bit because of, of these craft beverages and so on. It's all carbonated, uh, but food is, is a predominant application for a whole bunch of stuff in food. So, and, and then in terms of uh, international, they might have slightly different, well, their applications are essentially the same, but uh, the specifications are are defined a little bit differently. Although there is uh, a beverage group, which a trade association that has set standards for beverage quality, and that's that. It's like black and white. Uh, so in that respect, the whole bio discussion really comes down to what does bio mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in, in that respect, essentially what it comes down to is, you know, we're talking about purity yeah. and the end result. And and uh, we have to have absolute purity for beverage grade and virtually everything is produced as beverage grade because in fact, the gas companies refuse to separate trailers or, or need distribution equipment for say industrial versus uh you know food grade yeah which i wish they would for the sake of something like biogas but stuff going to industrial uses like uh, you know uh, say uh, welding gases and things like that that uh, or foundries things like that that are not going to care about you know the source type as long right. as it's produced versus yeah yeah right yeah. so 
heavy metal potentially or other chemicals maybe in yeah. the yeah. yeah the plant yeah okay so what about you had mentioned that using co2 for atmospheric enhancements what does that yeah. mean and how is that done and can you talk to me about that yeah well you know we have somewhere because of increased emissions in the atmosphere we have around 400 parts per million co2 in the atmosphere everywhere that we breathe right at one 100 at one time it was in the 300s high 300s mid to high 300s now it's in the low 400s but anyway to enhance the growth of of uh, cannabis plants for example the buds they call for raising the atmospheric content in a greenhouse to 800, the range between 800 and 1,000 parts per million, okay? And we have 400 in the air that we breathe, so it would be raised to that level at a, at a bare minimum. Now, some say you can raise it to 1,500 parts, and that's fine, and I would suspect that, you know, some operators claim that 1,000 to 1,500 parts per million in the greenhouse versus the 800 to 1,000 be more effective. Well, it's within that that greater range you know it's probably very good and you know the, the ultimate result is that you will improve your yield by 10 to 25 percent with this enhanced uh, content of co2 in the atmosphere uh, it generally it takes somewhere about two weeks to see results the uh, the day uh, per day every day that that you know, where you have growth in the, in the controlled greenhouse, there should be 12 hours of light, we hope. And uh, temperatures, you know, consistent with what we have in greenhouse operations. So, I, you know, it really does work. And there are a whole bunch of these greenhouse operations in, in kind of western part of, of Ontario. And there are other places where they have a lot of concentration of cannabis growth. Uh, it's, interesting, it's interesting to me to hear this, right? Because when we look at like sustainability and the carbon footprint of a cannabis operation of a medical or recreational indoor grow in a greenhouse, it's yeah. pretty, pretty carbon intensive. It right? is. It is. No it doubt. is. It is definitely. Uh, yeah. uh, but on the other hand, you have to look at the SCO2 uptake by the plant. So that's a form of sequestration. Sure. And, and so you know, in the world of sequestration, everybody is seeking methods to reduce their carbon footprint. So if you're able to have enough plants that, that with a CO2 uptake, just as a forest yeah. in a way, you're sure. going to, you know. It's what they eat, right? It's good right. for them. Trap yeah. the CO2, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, well, interesting. So talk to me about the, um, on the cannabis side, right, and cannabis grows when you're seeing the, the influx, right? You said increased yields. Um, are the typical grows then sequestering the carbon? Yes, that, yes. That, I mean, yep. that's, that's what they eat? That's what? That's what. That's correct. Take? In the process of photosynthesis, so light and, and, and water and CO2, and that, those are the ingredients, essentially, uh, at least the main ingredients. So, but you know, the, the improvement is up to 25%. So a lot of companies claim, some claim even even more enhancement, which would be as, you know, a denser bud for cannabis, you know, yeah. uh, and, and improved, in, uh, 
you know, growth of, of the plant overall. Interesting. Okay, so where I'm really interested, and I, I want to get back to the supercritical and the extraction piece also, but where I'm really interested is, you know, the use of and the requirements for uh, hemp to be used, you know, if we're converting it to an ethanol or a byproduct where CO2 becomes the byproduct, you know, yeah. what are those specs or that standard? And, and hearing you say that we've got this pull from industry to be more green and to pull more, you know, natural products, um, yeah. more sustainable materials. Um, can you dive into that a little bit more? You know, what what are some of the questions that would come up? What are some things to consider? Maybe where are some points that we need to, or, or groups or organizations? You had talked about an event, you know, that is that, that's coming up that you're speaking at, where it may be good opportunity for us to to learn about where offtakes would be, you know, for yeah. from processing. Okay. Well, you know, I, I fully believe in biomass, and I think biomass is a strong, which would be some of the material you're speaking of coming from hemp, you know. And the biomass, to me, is a, is a great uh, source feedstock for ethanol production. Yeah. And, and uh, production of, you know, and then CO2 byproduct to be a very green coming off something like that. Yeah. You know, well, you know, there could be the critics and saying, well, you know, you're, you're producing CO2 off, off this process. But on the other hand, if the, if the CO2 off this process is being used in, a, in a, the right applications, then there is consumption once again, or, or utilization once again, or even sequestration. Some companies have, uh, have taken Because there's a significant demand for CO2. Yeah, well, the demand at the moment, you know, let me, let me just tell you about the markets at the moment right now. The markets are extremely short in many, most places in the states. Yeah. It's, it's in a crisis mode now in New England, uh, in the middle Atlantic area, because like these big ammonia plants are shutting down for annual turnaround or maintenance. And they'll be down for six weeks at the very minimum. And it's a cycle that occurs every year. Yeah. But it, it's become worse because of, of the uh, COVID and the supply chain issues, the lack of sufficient, uh, say, drivers, the lack of the transportation equipment, and it's all been driven by the COVID factors in, in many ways. So, uh, you know, if you have your biomass sources in the close to a, a consuming location, which has a heavy usage and markets that really need it, I mean, that'd be a wonderful fit. Now, it could be virtually anywhere in the states and, and have a good fit right now because the supply is extremely tight. And there are, by the way, 111 operating plants in the states, more or less. And that's a lot of plants that produce CO2. On average, these plants would produce about 400 tons per day per plant. And think about that amount of tonnage. That's a lot of tonnage. Yeah. And, and right now, some of those plants are down or shortchanged because of lack of feedstock. Uh, feedstock in the case of like the ammonia industry have shut a bunch of plants down. Uh, the ethanol industry has had its problems since the beginning of COVID because gasoline consumption dropped significantly. And of course, we know ethanol is added to gasoline. Therefore, the ethanol plants were down or reducing capacity. And that 45% of the entire supply chain relies on ethanol. So, you know, it, it's 
they are driven by gasoline in that case. Now, uh, you know, I'd say if, if your markets could be attached to things other than that, then they'd be wonderful or even supplemental to that. Uh, the question I have, or what have, you know, for example, I'm going to give a piece in Chicago at the Gas World Conference uh, on the 21st of this month. And uh, it's called uh, Gas World CO2 Summit. And that's a good event for there are hundreds of uh, delegates that are, will be there from all sectors at all kinds of things, whether they be the producer or the innovator or the consumer, and many of whom are, are looking to try to bridge the gap during these times, like right now, when there's extreme, there are extreme shortages. And in New England, it's been, for example, in, in the Eastern U.S. has been chronically undersupplied with the product for a thousand reasons. Uh, a lot of the reasons are because uh, traditional feedstocks and sources have just not been enough. And if we talk about a new supply, you know, biofuels are wonderful, but biomass in itself could be the next big development, I feel, for the industry. Uh, biomass itself, just because then the chemical process or whatever process it goes yeah. into could create a plethora of different products. Right, right. And then biomass, speaking of that, if you could say, take some of that off of the hemp supply or the, from the hemp, that'd be a wonderful fit right there. We have tons. I mean, that's one of the biggest values to hemp is, right, is how much yeah. biomass it's capable of producing in a short period of time. Yeah, um, yeah you know, and what it does. And like you said, and then it growing, of course, the whole point is that it's sequestering carbon you know, yep. into its stock and then converted. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that it's like you said, it becomes this circle. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me. I, <clears throat> I still, there's so much I don't know on the carbon dioxide side or the chemical process side or what is needed as far as like food grade compared to industrial applications. But right. I envision that, you know, as the industry grows and it is a need to grow and have offtakes, right? Right now yeah. it's not that way. There yeah. is, the demand is huge. And yeah. as, as the oil and gas industry or the biofuels or biobutanol or, you know, ethanol open, open up, um, you know, and the, the demand for acres, you know, to fulfill those orders becomes, yeah. you know, doable and we start to see acres grown, then I can see it definitely, you know, merging into this. But I see where the demand really becomes, you know, we've got this need on one side of the industry where we have a potential option to fulfill or to move into these biofuels or biobutanol or bioethanols. Um, and so I'm curious, I would be interested in continuing the conversation and where I think the opportunity is, is for our industry to be at these conferences and talk to out of industry and look at, you know, where do we connect these dots? That's um, yeah. You know, so it's really interesting. What do you suppose is really pulling, you know, like where is that pain point that's really pulling the industry from the, from your side um, to say that we need to find something that's more eco-friendly or bio-based, um, you know, where is that drive coming from? Well, it, there's really a drive towards sustainability of the planet. That's what it comes down totally. to. Totally. And, and, you know, I mean, the diehard, uh, if you will, uh, 
sources from oil and gas, like the chemical production, and that's always going to be there to some degree, like it or not. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and that's critically important. I mean, I love my uh, my internal combustion engine cars. I do that, you know, but but the whole thing about going 100% battery is a thing for the long term, I believe. But in the interim, uh, CO2 uh, is a byproduct of ethanol, which is used as a, as a fuel additive will be on, going on for a very long time still. And then there are other markets for ethanol, you know, uh, the beverage market, of course, and the uh, medical markets, a lot of things like that, you know. Uh, but yeah, there are critical things that we need to be able to support, right? I just, yes. I look at the opportunity if, if, if it is a more green solution or process. Um, yeah. It's not a matter of eliminating, but clearly the demand is there. The need well, is there. Yeah. You know, and, and we look at supply chain and it just kind of, I had an aha moment as you were saying that, that, you know, without being able to use CO2 to freeze and ship, we're not able to move meat across supply chains. Right, um, right. You know, across yeah. country lines. Yeah. Country lines. yeah, in places like the UK, they had such a severe shortage uh, during earlier parts of the COVID yeah. crisis that they, the government got involved in trying to help direct companies to produce more CO2. But on the other hand, that's all a function of, it's a byproduct. So yeah. ammonia plants, the fermentation plants and stuff like that shut down in the UK for a period of time and they try to get them going again in order to have a CO2 byproduct. And it's so, so critically important to the uh, companies that wanted to Produce their product, and 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 then in the, in the media said, "Oh, we're going to run out of meat. We're going to run out of poultry. You know, so on." But in reality, that's it's a necessary ingredient for a lot of that processing. Uh, say the poultry industry is extremely uh, tied to uh, to CO two for refriger as a refrigerant, and it's the most versatile of all application. Uh, call it a refrigerant, the most versatile, versatile refrigerant there is versus, say, mechanical freezing or even nitrogen. It's much more so. And it's usually a more affordable. I mean, right now things are out of sight in terms of price, but I want to believe that will calm down. Uh, it's a function of supply and demand, and the demand is well out, outweighs the supply chain right now. Well, I think that we're feeling that pinch everywhere, right? And the need to localize the opportunity that we have to the opportunity that we have to supply local is really, I think, more a bio-based or a potential bio-based. I agree. Um, but but I still I see this big hurdle, like you explained, on what does bio mean, on what's included in that classification of. Yeah, I would I would say bio essentially. If I go back to my chemical background i talked about bio and i speak and i think of organic mm -hmm. or carbon containing but in truth bio is is perceived to me as plant-based to a large degree right but but that's not what your regulations or policies are or right right around bio it could be right. fecal matter also right oh, I know. we wouldn't I know. want to go into a food no. grade no so that that stuff that includes that, you know, they go to a dairy farm and they, they make a have a, a biogas plant there, making RNG renewable natural gas, and then it has CO two byproduct off that. Well, it's going to go to an industrial setting of some kind, and if it's going to 
industrial setting that, you know, making metal or things like that, well, that's fine, or concrete or whatever, that's wonderful. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and who would care in that respect? But the gas companies would have, you know, like they say we don't, we don't mix trailers, so basically they haven't accepted biogas yet by CO2. Uh, that's 30% of the market is industrial. So in some cases, it's more. And the industrial markets are growing all the time because new applications are being developed all the time. Uh, developing plastics that use CO2, uh, you know, things that replace hydrocarbons, you know, and CO2 is an ingredient and fuels, methanol, for example. I mean, that'd be a wonderful feedstock or something like methanol, CO2 off some of those sources. But back to uh, hemp, you know, you would you would easily produce a food and beverage grade off that, and then the markets could very much love that, for that matter. So it's a function of trying to find the principles, the, industri the investors, uh, say the technology firms that would apply this. And but I, I I'd like to think the future could very well include hemp, and it should. I was talking to myself and I was on mute. There was there's a little bit of red tape, right? Just like we're finding in all these other industries. Uh, I think Natasha brings up a good point. And I think that this is not in full scale. I think we will always need freezer capabilities that we just can't yeah. provide. But I think better insulation is a key piece to reducing the amount that we need, right? And reducing what what is required or the amount of time that it can retain its temperature or keep its temperature but i think that um we will always need freezer we need we will always need to be able to drop temperature below room temperature or below yes, yes. degrees or whatever yeah. um but yes i think that this is this is a value add also right that hemp yeah. has it's extremely insulative it will do better and i think one of the biggest values is in those big trucks or in rvs you know in in living quarters in large large areas not just inside cars and so mm -hmm. pretty pretty awesome uh bill hi it's great to see you um i'm interested in what what bill has to say here in the eu r744 co2 is rapidly replacing wow fluorofluorocarbons and refrigeration since it allows large waste heat recovery and gas cooler are you seeing r744 <laughs> using use increasing in the u.s are r744 specs just for food grade co2 no i'll tell you what bill i think i think what's happening you know i've i've investigated uh converting companies that look to convert from chlorofluorocarbons called so-called freon uh, uh, all types of, of refrigerants and and say like in a supermarket industry that where they have huge amounts of refrigeration demand and co2 uh, refrigeration is in fact viable but it needs to be in warmer climates now i understand that there are a few of them here in the states in the south that are actually using co2 in lieu of of uh, cfcs uh, which are, are very effective and what I've read and what I've investigated and what I've heard is they're not really doing it much in the cold climates but more in the warmer climates so it's what is what is r744 mean what is that what is eu r744 european uh, yeah I, I'm not familiar with r744 that's the thing I'm not familiar with that 
That's a common for, for it's a common what? No, it's a code of some kind. I don't know. Um, Bill, if you if you don't mind, I, I, I'm interested in this question. I'm just not sure what R744 is um, and where that comes from, I guess. Just for food grade CO2. Are R744 specs? Is that an ASTM code, I wonder? Anyways, curious. I'd love to know. Okay, so Sam, talk to me about clients. Oh, refrigerated. It's a refrigerate. It's a refrigerant code. I got you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't. Well, speaking of refrigerant code and so on, what I, what I what I look at when and I don't see a refrigerant code per se that would that would you know govern CO two. Uh, there might be an industrial uses like. Uh, trying to replace CFCs with CO2 in for some of the large industrial users like uh, say supermarkets and so on and once again I mentioned that I, th I think a few have converted over here in the states in the southern climate and the hot climates but I also understand they haven't done so in the northern part of the states now what they're doing in Europe I understand that's more much more common uh, be, you know, and frankly, they, you know, they've been following uh, guidelines that have been much more, uh, say, fostering, uh, you know, good practices for the environment more in Europe than they have here for a long time. Right? I believe that, at least in a lot of the European countries. Gotcha. So I, that's how I see it. I uh, now. You know, the only thing about codes and that kind of thing with CO2 usage, predominantly food and beverage. Well, you know, if it's a food grade, then there, there are codes that are that govern food grade uh, and, and trade associations, things like that, that, that have identified the, the requirements for purity. Now, I'll tell you what, if you have a food grade CO2, it would meet anything, you know, the spec that Bill is talking about. So that's, I'm sure of that. Gotcha. Okay, so talk to me about engagement with you. You know, as a consultant, talk to me about how does somebody engage? What does a typical engagement look like? Who are the, who are the best clients that you're working with? You know, talk to me about who fits inside this box if somebody is looking for service. Well, look, yeah, companies come to me. I mean, I've written hundreds of articles in the industry on CO2 applications and practices and sources and whatnot, you know. Uh, but a lot of them come to me via my website, which is www.carbondioxideconsultants.com. That's one way, or just look me up at sandrushing-co2. Uh, you'll come up with a whole bunch of hits, and then my name will be there predominantly and phone number. I can get my phone number, 305-852-2597. Uh, what about your email? I yeah, your email is. Yeah, your yeah, rushing at is is my business email. And I'll share your phone number here for everybody also. Um, and Mandy, you know, I I'm engaged uh, a lot of on a project basis, a lot of times, sometimes hourly basis, to evaluate sources, evaluate processes, and evaluate the cost of production and the markets for CO2 and, th and the demand and things of that nature and the supply within a region, within a country, within 
as to whatever you're doing as a project. Interesting. Okay, so here's a comment Bill said, uh, Trader Joe's is switching all stores naturally or nationally to R744, all hot water and space heat is captured from the refrigeration system. Okay. Interesting. New, new, new refrigerant codes. Yeah, that's just. Well, I, I could see. It's amazing what you know, Bill. Yeah, well, they're environmentally friendly, no doubt. So. Uh, and I think this is something that you know really pays attention to this, like, use of energy and you know what's happening in a trade and or a change or an advancement in technology and. Um, it'll be interesting, especially as the demands, you know, there's a need to find a new solution for a lot of this if our demand is not being met. So, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, go ahead. I'd love to see expansion of commercial refrigeration with CO2. That'd be wonderful to see that. Uh, talk about Trader Joe's and other, you know, large, say, cold storage facilities or large, you know, grocery yeah. operating things of that nature have a whole bunch of refrigeration that make a lot of sense yeah yeah um uh, see and this is the kind of stuff i it, just more and more i would i was so and still am <laughs> just a baby but so disconnected from where my food came from where my clothes come from what 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 is involved in the supply chain in order for me to have the convenience of walking into a grocery store and buying something off the shelves like it is just i'm so disconnected from it and hemp has uncovered a lot just like this i was so far removed at where hemp plays a role or could play a role or companies are adjusting to becoming more sustainable because of supply chain issues or because of lack of supply um you know on their demand yes Yes. It's just and, interesting. And in terms of biomass, hemp could be a wonderful biomass. And then there'd never be an argument about waste, uh, the derogatory waste that is for the food and beverage industry. And if you're purifying to beverage quality, that's going to be just fine for refrigerant as a refrigerant, very much so. Uh, I know that. That's one factor I do know. Uh, it's a little bit in its infancy here in the States. But I feel that there's room for growth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is awesome, Bill. Engineering company for Trader Joe's. Check them out and see if they need supply. Um, I'll be sure to copy that and get you the email because I think it'd be a okay. great, you know, okay. great opportunity. Um, good to learn. It's always good to connect. Um, Bill, I'm curious about any other questions. This is obviously a topic over my head. But Sam, anything else that you think, you know, we need to be knowing what should we be talking about or what are some key things that you're you know consulting on you know recently or that you see you know here in the near future problems and concerns that are going to be coming up on the supply chain is is that for me mandy or for, yeah, for you okay well the supply chain as i mentioned to you is for co for merchant co2 is somewhat broken no doubt yeah uh, because you know, shortages of a product pretty much started uh, to become more severe at the beginning of the pandemic. And we under we all have been told about, you know, available transportation equipment, drivers and, and to drive these vehicles. A lot of these guys have simply retired and said, I, I don't want to do it anymore. And 
it's it's coming up as a that's one of the major labor factors and then also the rail systems about uh, say 25 percent of the, of the co2 in this country is transported via rail uh in north let's talk about north america at large and uh, for the northeastern u.s which has had dire shortage of co2 uh, a lot of that stuff has come out of canada and the canadian rail uh, cn has been had their problems with labor so in fact and, and I, there might have been strikes but i believe that there's plain old lack of labor train labor so that was a big problem there in terms of getting product from say uh, quebec and and ontario down into new england for example so in terms of the supply chain i just feel that we need to develop more sources and of course on if we can develop sustainable sources uh bio-based sources like hemp would be wonderful uh, okay so bill's got another great question um any new technology for co2 removal from biogas biogas cleanup is expensive but can produce co2 as a byproduct new technologies well on the subject of biogas you have roughly 55 percent methane and 45 percent co2 and the co2 coming off that is not so bad in terms of the product however it contains uh, you know biogas has never been successfully used in to my knowledge in the supply chain for co2 now i feel that that is up and coming to change now the beverage firms have this association of biogas containing waste okay uh, if it's purely from food waste for example and doesn't contain fecal matter that i think it, they would accept it uh, on the other hand most biogas is coming from facilities like wastewater treatment or something on a, on a farm or whatnot that contain fecal matter so you know that'd be great for the for the uh say industrial sector that is not food and beverage on the other hand, you know, chemically you can purify it at any level and you could easily purify the beverage specs and so on coming off, you know, those that are considered derogatory waste types, you know, but the beverage firms will not accept it and the trade associations will not accept it. Uh, that's a problem right now. Now, that might change over time because the realities are how many you know, finite sources of CO2 and there are more and more biogas plants opening up in a domestically here that would be a great source for supply to the industry. Now, if it were clean enough, and I would, I don't care if it goes into my food or not. I don't care as long as it's pure and chemically pure, I don't care. Now, I think a lot of customers would be turned off if they knew it came from a, an ammonia plant, for example, or a chemical plant making ethylene oxide, something like that. Uh, and that's a byproduct of that, uh, you know, hydrogen reformer maybe it's the same thing if they knew that they'd say oh god i don't want that stuff in my meat either you know yeah. but in reality you know it, it comes down to the trade associations acceptance of, and also the uh the, the food industry would have to accept this and, and the consumer they often say the consumer will not accept something that contains waste but they accept something that comes from an ammonia plant they know, a lot of consumers don't know that. And it's, I think it's a matter of educating consumers to some degree. I really do. Interesting. 
Uh, well, I definitely think that there's a shift. About, like I said, I and I know I'm not the only consumer that is so far disconnected from where supply chain is. Yeah. Um, I am very interested in technology. Can you, um, you know, speak very briefly about what happens and on the chemical breakdown or on the process of converting a bio product or a biomass to a ethanol? Yeah, and is it a enzymatic process? What happens? Oftentimes, it's enzymatic. A lot of the processes are are proprietary. Yeah. Now, now if it's if it's grain based ethanol, that's a simple uh, application for fermentation. But you know, I think we're speaking of something that's more of a biomass, more that's uh, it's not really in the supply chain at the moment. So, the, the those projects I've worked on in the past have used. Uh, various things to include bacteria to include enzymes for conversion and you know like the wood waste project i was talking about and and they're investigating using other types of biomass and they'd be easily you know uh, amenable to using something like uh you know uh, hemp i would think very much so what's and the difference then, go ahead i'm sorry what's the difference between a biobutanol and a bioethanol what happens in well, the, you know? yeah, yeah, ethanol and butanol are basically it's a length of the hydrocarbon chain. That's a difference. Uh, it's a different chemical process that would create uh, butanol versus uh, ethanol. So it's it's another alcohol essentially is what it is. So it's just another step or two that would that would change the process. I would or the end result, I should say. Um. I would love to connect you with a group that has presented a couple of times with a biorefinery for biobutanol with byproducts yeah. or sugars and other things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm interested in where their gas is going or what, what is produced if it's CO2, you know, or what that additional step looks like. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested. I just think that it's fascinating. And like I said, it's interesting how we're still connected on really every other industry out there. And so my goal is to continue to have the conversations with out of industry and look at where byproducts and we create more materials and more offtake agreements because hemp creates a lot of products. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, you know, the, the merchant CO2 industry is very much in need of new source types and something that's clean, like call it the feedstock from hemp would be clean, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and it's sustainable and it's, you know that the whole thing is making that that carbon cycle is what you're doing so it's fascinating it's yeah. fascinating so anything else you want to touch on real quick we didn't talk about extraction critical co2 if you want to touch on that because yeah, well, um, you know on the uh, credit supercritical extraction what has been going on for many years it would be decaffeination of coffee using co2 as a solvent in supercritical terms and supercritical essentially means, you know, you know, liquid and, and vapor are, are one, you know, essentially become one, if you will. Uh, CO2 is unique in the sense that if you have dry ice, it, it sublimates from a solid to a gas, misses a liquid phase. But uh, supercritical conditions would be under pressure, including the liquid phase. And, uh, Decaffeination of coffee has been a common process here in the States and all over the world for that matter. And, I didn't know that that's how it was made. Right, 
Right. I have and no idea. That's cool. CO2 is a great solvent for that, you know, and it's clean and it's, you know, yeah. it's natural, natural instead of a hydrocarbon. Now, the argument about what is really pure and what is really good to be used as for uh, supercritical extraction as a solvent, CO2, we could call it a natural product. And if it's coming from a clean source, well, virtually everything is a clean source in today's world because it's coming from, it would be a beverage grade product, which has to be meet those specifications. So in lieu of something like butane, propane or hexane or whatnot, the long chain hydrocarbons would be, mm -hmm. it could go on and on about the size of the hydrocarbon chain, but still, mm -hmm. I, if I were consuming CBD, I would like it to be coming from a clean operation for extractions using CO2 versus a hydrocarbon. So uh, and in terms of the process of the supercritical extraction, uh, the, the extracting device extractor is raising the pressure from up to 300, up to rather 3,005 to 5,000 PSI to extract that CO2, I mean, I'm sorry, that uh, CBD mm -hmm. oil from from the uh, cannabis, you know. And then CO2 in that case is recovered and recycled and collected and it's basically a loop system. There is some replacement, but it is essentially a loop system, so it's not wasteful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, well, and again, this becomes, this is a topic, like there's lots of different types of extraction you know, yeah. there's a lot, lot yeah. that are ethanol based. There's some that are CO2. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, and I think that there's even more, you'd mentioned butanol. I know that, you know, when I very first got into this industry, I was working with a group that was trying to figure out, not working with, but I was really attending events, trying to figure out what we had or what he had created. Right. And he had taken right. a, an extraction technology from the dairy industry, um, you know, and it was using butanol. Okay. You know, so same same type, but it was holding yeah. on to those fats or those you know, okay. pulling the lipids out and yeah, yeah, um, extraction. But then right. the separation is it was also pulling the chlorophyll and everything else. So there were a lot of differences on you know what it is. But mm -hmm. yeah, I it was interesting. I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot for a second yeah. about I shouldn't say a lot, but I definitely dove in for a couple months on extraction and trying to figure out. What, what it was. Yeah. And then, you know, if you talk about uh, CO2 overload for the human body, I mean, you know, we have 400 parts in the atmosphere, the every, every, all the air that we breathe. Uh, they talk about CO2 poisoning and asphyxiation and so on. This is just worth a mention, I guess. If you have as much as 10,000 parts, you become drowsy. And 12,000 parts, uh, which would be 1.2% CO2 in, the, in a given place, it's going to cause headaches and then goes on and on. From that point, over 20,000 parts would cause death and, and for the sake of like asphyxiation. Uh, so CO2, you know, in, in processing plants has to be monitored uh, with respect to atmospheric yeah. level. And a lot of ventilation has to occur. Yeah, I can imagine. See, and this yeah. is 
this is the, the processing of or manufacturing of the product that yeah. we in the industry are trying to sequester, right? And trade the carbon. And so it's such yeah. an interesting uh, dichotomy relationship. It's right. such an interesting, right. you know, crossover that really all the materials that we're hoping to be made out of hemp will need to be, for example, transported with a or could potentially be needed. Um, you know, to transport the material or transport the hemp burger or hemp uh, chicken or, you know, hemp yeah. oils yeah. or whatever it is. It's just, yeah, or extraction of it. Yeah, processing of it. Just interesting to me. Um, okay, well, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I enjoyed the conversation. I would love to continue to have this conversation. I'd really like to connect you with um, Vinny. Vinny and his partner have done some incredible things with biobutanol, and I'm actually interested in what is the offtake and what does this look like? I know they're focused on biobutanol though um, versus the ethanol, but I would assume okay. that okay. the process is probably pretty similar or something close yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm interested in what that would look like and what, you know, what, what opportunity then would we have to fulfill one of those demands or what are some of the immediate hurdles that we need to overcome? Um, like you said, if it's not accepted through the associations or through the um, you know, if the standard is is still not developed, it's something we've got to look into. Um, yes, yes. Bio, I think biomass has a great future, but, uh, you know, it hasn't been tapped very much so far as a feedstock uh, or CO2 for, call it as a, is one of the sources for CO2 feedstock and making food-grade CO2, food and beverage grade. Um, you know, we're short of it in the states and short of it right now they have a crisis of sorts again in europe going on same thing yeah, yeah. you know okay uh, well let's let's talk about it we've got to figure a way to get it out of the out of the air and then use it to you know right. be efficient but we've got right. to find a way and again hemp is a great resource for that and, the and amount for of that it produces in the short period of time and our ability to grow it in so many regions is really beneficial, but man, we've got a lot of a long way to go at being able to scale acres, you know, to even fill demand, I would imagine for a project. Yeah. Like this. Yes, so, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Anyways, well, I sure enjoyed the conversation, Sam. Thank you very, very much. Real quick one for time. How does somebody get a hold of you if they want to connect? Yeah, that would be wonderful. And then somebody recently connected with me on, on uh, LinkedIn. It's just semi rushing. Uh, very easy. And awesome. uh, or read my articles and there's always a reference to my contact information. Awesome. Mandy, cool. I appreciate your passing my information around. I really do. Absolutely. I would love to continue this conversation. Let's stay in touch. If you need anything or if you hear conversation evolving about bio-based, you know, materials, please keep us in mind. Yes. Lots of people, you know, within the association that are working on, you know, various industries or very various different sectors that you know could potentially feed into the biomass sector if, right, if, right. if not more but that's very minimal right the biomass I is, I agree. is available so 
Cool. Well, thank you very much, Sam. We'll see everybody later. We do have another interview tomorrow. Theo is opening the Prairie um, Band Ag is opening his facility here pretty soon. So we're going to get on and interview him and talk about what processing looks like for them, where they're located, equipment and so forth. So we encourage you guys to get on and log on same time tomorrow, 10 a.m. Um, on our YouTube channel. And then if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our channel is growing. There's tons of content being added every week. Um, lots of great connections. And so be sure you get there, get on there and, and register. Also, if you're not already a member of Global Hemp Association, we would love your support. It's $75 a month or $750 a year. We would love to have you involved, help drive your connections, build relationships, and especially getting involved in what's coming, right? How do we really impact what's ahead of us? Um, all of our members also get access to our fiber variety trials that we did this year. All of the data will be available to members in May of 2023 or to sponsors November, December of this year. As soon as the trial data comes out and we get it compiled, we will get it released. Just remembering that so many areas, um, different, different areas or different states planted significantly you know, different times, some 30 or 40 days, 50 days apart. So that really impacts when we're able to get the full data out to everybody, but we'll be sending updates out. So we're really excited about it. I want to be sure that we share data and for info, 10 varieties, 10 different states. Anyways, thanks again, Sam. Thank you for everybody that joined. I sure appreciate you. Talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Absolutely. Bye-bye.